journalist, not a terrorist. I know what's right. The First Amendment tight. With the Lafayette Square, cause Trump don't care. Kids out of the cages and increase our wages. Welcome to a special episode of Nehera in America. Today, our guest is a former DEA supervisor and special agent with 30 years extensive experience in counterterrorism and its narcotics enforcement. He is recognized as one of the most highest decorated drug enforcement agents in the history of the Bureau. He was recognized by U.S. Attorney General Ed Meese for heroism. He received the Federal Bar Association Medal of Valor, the Federal Executive Board Chairman Special Award, and is credited for his handling and solving of the kidnap, torture, and murder of undercover DEA agent Enrique Kiki Camarena. Please welcome to the show. Hector Borellis. Thank you, Hector. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great, Hector. It's great. You don't have to call me sir because that's your military background. I've read your book. That, 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 that's my military training. That is your military training. Yes, I was reading your book. Um, you spent time in the military. Yes, I did. But, you know, taking this book back, this this book, you know, the, the by Hector Borellis, The Last Narc, it's a memoir by the DA's most notorious agent. And you are considered the DA's most notorious agent on a lot of levels. You spent over 30 years in law enforcement. Uh, you've been, you've seen the drug war from in inside and out. Um, and that's why I wanted, really wanted to bring you on here. So many people on here in America have so many questions. We have so many different kind of guests. But you're one of those guests that after I read your book, I felt I knew you. It's a really well-written book really well written the last narc and and for those listening you should definitely get it 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 really takes a look at, at your life hector i mean from the beginning let's let's take it back let's talk about your family where you grew up how you started getting into the the law enforcement can you take us back a little while sure i um grew up in uh the barrio of south Tucson, arizona um i grew up speaking both english and spanish we spoke Spanglish growing up, meaning uh, we didn't speak correct, pure Spanish as spoken in Mexico. Uh, we had, spoke a combination of English and Spanish, like uh, estacionar el carro was parquear el carro. Uh, a lot of words that we took from English and kind of making sound yeah. Spanish. So Lun it was Luncha. actually Spanglish that I grew up yeah. talking. I, I grew up on in San Diego on the border of Tijuana and... The way we spoke to the same thing is like not el muerto, it's lonche. You know, it's like it's words that we 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 basically created our own language in a strange way. Um, but that's true. That's, yes. that's true in Mexico City. It's true all throughout Mexico and and even the regions of of America. You knew the border probably better than anyone. But your family had been here all the way since the days of of Kit Carson. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, our family came in uh, from Spain. On the ships, uh, they arrived here. While here, uh, the King of Spain wanted uh, Southern California or the Southern, actually, United States back then, called Nueva uh, España, New Spain, to be colonized. Mm -hmm. So the soldiers that, were, that came here uh, on board those Spanish ships were ordered to stay here. And uh, like five years later, they sent a ship with nothing but women so the soldiers could marry and colonize 
all of what was Southern United States, uh, California, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, as we know. So my family has been in this country since then. Wow. Well, so they they brought a ship of women over. I mean, that is that is the oddest first date <laughs> or blind date any man has ever had. But they came here, and they were trying to build up and colonize California. So that is correct. And the reason that the King of Spain wanted to do that was because by then the uh, French had already come in through Louisiana. They were trying to settle that area. And, of course, uh, the pilgrims came in through Massachusetts. So the king of Spain wanted 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 to take over this part of the country, basically ordered the soldiers not to come back. So they sent them a ship with a uh, ship uh, full of females so that they could colonize this part of the country. Now, so your family was some of the original families here in California. That That is correct. As a matter of fact, my, my family, my ancestors own all of what is uh, uh, Sonoma County right now. We have thousands and thousands of acres there. Oh, Napa Valley, the most beautiful Napa areas. Valley, exactly. Oh. So you're basically, in, your family back then is in paradise, in Napa Valley. Now, later on, you know, your your family, you mentioned in your book, was the first family deported to the United States. Can you tell me a little about that story? Well, you know, after we colonized here, our my ancestors were killed during the Bear Black Revolt. And uh, because they were being killed for their land by the U.S. cavalry, they fled to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we stayed in Mexico for years. Uh, later, we came back to the United States. And uh, my my mother, her sisters, they were all born in the United States. But back in the old days, in the 1940s, they picked them up and deported them back to Mexico. Yeah, now that so was... here they are back in mm-hmm. Mexico. When my mom is 16 years old, pregnant by me, she's picked up by Mexico's immigration and dumped on the U.S. border because she wasn't from Mexico. She was illegally in Mexico. So my family was deported south and north, believe it or not. Isn't that something? No, that's 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 um, that's growing up on the border. I mean, sometimes you, you can't even make sense of all the different things and laws. Basically, what is your, you know, when they look at the Latinos, it's like, you didn't. You're one of the people that didn't cross the border. The border crossed you, and then recrossed you. So you've had your run-ins with with our system. And from there, you you joined the you joined the army. You got out of the army. Uh, you saw a lot of you know a lot of pain and suffering. You were a medic. Right. How now? From there, you you later on they they were looking for someone for the for the DA. At this point, the DA is a small small organization, and not many people knew about them. Right. That is correct. Back then, when when I, I applied uh, for the FBI from the uh, Highway Patrol, the FBI was not hiring. So they basically informed me that there was uh, openings with uh, DEA back then and that I should apply there because it was a new agency. And they told me they're, they're looking for, uh, uh, you know, college graduates that are Spanish speakers. So you qualify. Mm-hmm. So then I went and applied for the DEA and I was in the second class of the DEA because they were just forming it. Nixon had just decided to form a new, very aggressive federal drug enforcement agency. Now, this new aggressive federal drug enforcement agency, you know, created by Nixon at that time, um, it was it, was that kind of the wild, wild west for this agency? I mean, did people know what they were doing or what was it about or what the plan was? It was kind of like the wild west because we uh, were sent to an academy, of course, uh, back then, we didn't go to Quantico. DA had its own little, a little academy. We stayed at hotels. 
it was a lot of fun going to the academy. And they taught us, of course, laws of arrest and drug identification and all the things we needed to know uh, to enforce the federal drug laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, they taught us a lot of shooting. We would, sh- we would be taken to the range every day where we would shoot a thousand rounds. And at the academy, they told us that 25% of us would be dead in the first five years because we're going to uh, wage a real aggressive war against the narcos, especially in Colombia and Mexico. And he told us, you, you pay attention so you'll stay alive because 25% of you are going to be dead in the first five years um, that they, they come on the job. Did that statistic prove out to be true? Actually, well, we used to laugh. We didn't believe him. We thought they were just trying to scare us. And it, it was actually more than 25% that were killed on the job. So more than 25%. They were, they were dead serious mm-hmm. uh, when they told us that we were about to embark in a very, very dangerous war. Now let's take take this back. You're you're a D agent. You're you're Mexican American. You're you've, you've seen battle. You've seen all these things. You, you're almost going going into this war, um, even after your education, a little bit naive and young. Um, how when was the when was your first bus? What was that like? It was very exciting. Uh, you know, I arrested a Mexican lawyer from Sinaloa. Mm-hmm. I was a young, very young agent. I had no experience. I was so, so green that I, that basically the story, the cover story that I gave the drug lord was that, or drug trafficker, he wasn't a drug lord. He was a significant heroin violator. When we come back, we'll have more from Hector Barrellas in this riveting interview about his book, Last Narc. You're listening to the Nahara in America podcast. The podcast that isn't afraid to tell it like it is to people who aren't afraid to hear like it is. You can listen to us on Revolver Podcasts or wherever you find your finer podcasts. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We're coming back with more of Hector Burles' The Last Narc. I told him that the reason I was involved in, 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 in drugs was because my mom had cancer. And I needed to make money to pay the medical bills that I really didn't use drugs. I didn't smoke dope or anything like that. I looked very clean. Mm-hmm. I was only like 26 years old. And uh, I told him that basically the Chicago uh, crime syndicate had hired me to buy heroin for them because I spoke Spanish. Mm-hmm. And the guy believed my story. He um, he really liked me. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, I, he, he first told me, like, I think it was 10 ounces of heroin, and I, I did what's called a buy walk, where you pay for the heroin, you don't make the bust, and order a bigger amount. Mm-hmm. So uh, after I bought the, the 10 ounces and walked them, uh, he, I called him back in a week and told him that the heroin proved very, very high impurity, that my Chicago mob guys really loved it, and they wanted uh, two kilos of heroin. And he said, fine, he says, uh, you know, I'll call you when I'm in the States with the product and uh, you, you pay me and I'll deliver it to you. And, and I says, great. How much is about so two, 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 two weeks two. later? He called me and mm-hmm. he said, I'm here. I'm ready to do business. Come here, muchacho. I've got a gift for you, too. I really like you. So I said, OK. So we set up and uh, uh, he was at a hotel and we set up to 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 bus him there. Mm-hmm. Him, by the way, his his bodyguard, because he wasn't alone. He had he had uh, like four armed bodyguards with him. So I went in, and first thing he says is, Muchacho, I have a gift for you. And I said, what is it? And he hands me this bag with white powder. And he says, you know what that is? And I said, no, what is it? He says, that's cocaine, dude. He says, cocaine? He says, yeah, and it's pure. 
And I'm going to tell you what you're going to do with it. He says, I'm going to give it to you. And out of each ounce, I want you to make four ounces. Put cut in it. Milk sugar, he told me. Mm -hmm. And that way, out of each ounce, you make four ounces. And you can sell each ounce for about at least $5,000 each. You're going to make a lot of money. I'm going to give it to you. And I want you to pay the medical bills for your mom. And please get out of this business. You're a good kid, man. What are you doing wrapped up in this shit? And he said, uh, he he gave me the bag and he says, uh, have you got the money to do the other stuff? Half a million dollars, 250,000 per kilo. Mm -hmm. And I says, yeah, I do. I didn't have it. I said, where's the money? I said, well, it's in the trunk of my car. He said, you brought all the money. And I said, I have all the money. He said, okay. He says, um, we'll go get it. And I said, I can't go get the money. What if you rip me off? I want to see that you have the stuff. So he did. He showed me the heroin. He said, here it is. We'll get the money. So we busted him. Mm-hmm. And that was my first experience of busting somebody that I really liked. I really liked this guy. Mm-hmm. And it hurt me to bust him. I said, Jesus Christ, I don't know if I can do this job. Yeah, These guys really take me in. They really like me. And then I have to arrest them. I feel like, I feel like it's a big betrayal. I mean, and uh, so I went to my boss and he congratulated me. He says, great job, man. That's 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 a lot of heroin, Hector. And I says, oh, yeah, thank you, sir. He says, but I, I don't know if I can do this job. And he goes, why? He says, the guy really liked me and I really liked him. And I, I, I don't like, I feel like I'm betraying my own dude. I said, you know, this, this is an Anglo-Saxon guy, you know. Yeah, of course. And he said, well, no, Hector. He says, he doesn't like Hector Berreas. You're Hector Berreas. He likes Manuel Lizarraga, which is my undercover um, persona that I was using with him. He says, he doesn't like you. He lets you run to cover, guy. Mm-hmm. I said, really? Kind of thought about it. said, you know, it, it, it makes sense. He doesn't like me. He liked who he thought I was. So then I really got into it, and uh, I made a lot of by bus before that. And if I may say that I really, really became very good at an undercover work. Mm-hmm. And I really knew that I was good when I busted a captain of the Webb County Narcotics Unit in Laredo, Texas. Well, I, it wasn't the biggest bust. It was the most significant to me because mm-hmm. when I really knew and realized actually how good I was undercover is when I went undercover into a corrupt Webb County Narcotics captain. Here's a guy who was a captain in narcotics who ran a drug unit in Laredo, Texas. And I was introduced to him by a female informant as a major heroin dealer. Yeah. To make a, a long story short, I was undercover into it for six months. What was your undercover for him? Just to look, or how was it remarkably different? What What was your cover? Who would they say you were? Again, I used to like to use the name Manuel Sarga from Chicago. Okay, and then I always gave this cover story that I was, you know, involved with a crime syndicate up there, and mm-hmm. I was I was involved with organized crime, blah blah blah, uh, and so on and so forth. But anyway. Uh, uh, the female undercover informant introduced me to him in Laredo, Texas. Mm-hmm. I met him, and basically the first time I met him, he he actually made me and a female informant and another informant take all of our clothes off. And he got us all naked, and he said, I want to make sure you're not wearing a wire, and I want to make sure you're not a DEA undercover agent. And uh, so after he got us all naked, to include the, the beautiful female informant, she was, she was beautiful. Blonde, blue-eyed. Hispanic. I mean, uh-huh. spoke Spanish. I mean, you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, even the girl, he pointed a gun at her and he says, Mary, take everything off. 
So here we are standing naked, socks off, shorts off, everything. And uh, so he's got his gun on us. And I said, listen, we know you're a cop. I said, I want you to take everything off. He says, what? I said, I, I said if we're going to do business, I want you to get undressed too. Take everything off, dude. So he said, okay, okay. So he starts taking everything off. He's down to his boxers and his socks. And I said, no, 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 no. Take it all off, dude. I'm standing here with my thing hanging out. I said, I want you naked too. So he took everything off. And to break the eyes, I said, you know what? You you, you, you two faggots, Mary and I are going to get busy in the bed over here. I don't know what you guys are going to do. So then everybody started laughing. And of course, from then on, you know, I I, I bought it, made several heroin buys from him, small ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I was undercover into this guy, I don't know, for six months. I really, really got to like him. I mean, he used to take me to bars, nightclubs, get me women, pay for women for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was a long-term undercover uh, case. Yeah. And finally, I had, he brought up the, I think it was five kilos of heroin that ended the case. And we were going to arrest him. And I basically was going out from his house to the executive airport where supposedly I had all these millions of dollars to pay him for the heroin. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the way out, we were in his police car, believe it or not. Uh-huh. And I said, uh, Lou, I said, let me your gun. And he said, what do you want my gun for? He was in, he was, he was with his badge and his gun and everything. And I said, well, I need, I need to borrow it. I said, because you know what? I don't trust the Cuban guy that, that brought the heroin, dude. He said, why don't you trust him? This is Cuban, man. What the hell is Cuban doing with Mexican heroin? I, 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 I think you guys might want to rip me off or something. And you're a cop. I'm, a, I'm afraid, dude. Mm-hmm. And he said, you really want me to lend you my gun? And I says, please, lend me your gun. You know why I did this? To, to I did it unarmed. because I was afraid he was going to go for his gun when they went to bust him and he, they were going to have to kill him. Yeah. Okay. And I had my gun, but he didn't know I had a gun uh, uh, in my ankle, mm-hmm. my ankle holster in my in, in my boot. Yeah. So um, so I took his gun away from him and I gave the bus signal and the, the, the troops came in and they arrested him. They swooped up on him. And he tells everybody, whoa, whoa, whoa. He says, I'm arresting this guy. He's a heroin trafficker from Chicago, and I'm arresting him. And they told him, Lou, no, no, stop the circus, man. This guy's a DEA undercover agent. You just delivered heroin to him. You're under arrest. So, wow. again, that feeling of, of, of I felt like I betrayed a, a, a friend again. You know, it, that's one of the things I could never get used to uh, when I was doing undercover work. And it's, the things that really got to me in my assignments is when I had to kill some of these guys. When was the first time you actually killed someone? Do you remember that? The first time I killed somebody? Yeah. Was it the Sinaloans? Was it, well, yeah, it was in Mexico, and it was in it was actually outside of Guadalajara, Jalisco. Uh-huh. Uh, I was on a OPM uh, marijuana buy, and uh, I had gone up to the mountains uh, with an informant because back back over there in Mexico, you know, you can't drive up; you have to cross rivers and everything else on foot to get to where these guys uh, have the opium and then and then the marijuana uh stored so we went up there and and I, I met with them had dinner with them and everything else up in the mountains came down and told them that, that i needed them to bring the stuff down i was going to have a truck there and i was going to have their money there when they brought the stuff down when we come back we'll have more from hector Barellas in this riveting interview about his book the last narc you're listening to the nahara in america podcast 
the podcast that isn't afraid to tell it like it is to people who aren't afraid to hear like it is. You can listen to us on Revolver Podcasts or wherever you find your finer podcasts. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. back with more of Hector Burles's The Last Narc. I had soldiers and federal agents hidden on all the bushes there in the jungle. I'll give the bus signal and uh, shooting started. He was come walking up to me when the shooting started because his men, he also had men protecting him. They saw our, the soldiers and my guys coming out to arrest, make the arrest and he pulled his gun and, mm-hmm. and I killed him. And I felt really bad. This is the man that you had dinner with the night before. This is, I mean, this is the odd thing about what psychologically you must go through. I mean, go from the fact that you know what the outcome is going to be, that, that he's your enemy. Um, I mean, it's almost that classic story in, uh, I think it was uh, the movie with uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, um, where they're bank robbers and they meet the the police and, and the criminal. So you have to navigate that world of being the the police and be the criminal at the same time so they feel comfortable with it, you it's, it's psychological whiplash and then i killed a guy here in 1985 here in uh san bernardino california and he was a sinaloa cowboy myself and another partner of mine rubber bags and i were undercover and again it was another heroin deal when bobby gave the bus signal um then the troops were coming in to arrest them one of the drug lords that was that had just handed me the heroin and and I made a big mistake here, Rick, because I occupied my hands uh, receiving the, a gym bag with a heroin. Mm-hmm. And when the trafficker saw the, the the troops coming in, he yelled at me, "Son los perros!" It's the dogs, meaning the cops. Yeah. And he pulls his gun out and he's about to fire at one of my agents coming in to to make the arrest. So I kind of uh, like I hit his arm. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, deflating the the, the 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 shot, and then I I I I had my hand. I then I, I dropped the, the bag of the heroin and I grabbed my gun and I shot him, and Bobby shot him and we killed him. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other two traffickers, of course, they they ran and they were armed too. And the surrounding participating agents, other surveillance agents, they were they captured those two other guys as they ran. But one thing that really, to this day, these are the nightmares that we suffer. Mm-hmm. I remember walking up to the guy that I had we had shot, and he still had his gun in his hand, and he was laying there. We shot him more than, I think we shot him about 17 times or something. Because, you know, shooting somebody, it's not like in the movies, you know. Yeah, because they can in still the movies, shoot you shoot them and, they, and they fall. You yeah. know, the, these bullets that we have nowadays are so fast, and, and they're, they're, they're like needles. When people get shot, they don't even know they're shot. So you'll, you'll put five rounds in him and he's still standing there with his gun. And you're wondering now they're, why they're not going down. Well, they're not going down because it's not like in the movies. The human body t- t- takes a lot of punishment. Yeah. So we just shot him and shot him and shot him until he finally went down. But when he was laying there, he's still alive. And I walk up to him and, I, of course, I step on his arm because he's still got the nine millimeter in his hand. Yeah. And he looks up to me and he says, Dispense me, Manuel. I'm sorry, Manuel. And I and I said, why is he apologizing to me? Yeah, I thought, does he, is he apologizing to, to this? It bothered me to this day. Mm-hmm. Was he apologizing him, himself to me 
because he was a criminal or in the in the in the shooting in the the I guess confusion of the shooting did he think that I was still on his side that I was still a criminal because remember when he pulled a gun he yes. told me to run and 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 of course I didn't run I mean I dropped the, the bag of heroin when I went for my gun it started blasting so those things you live with I call them my shadows and there's a chapter devoted to this kind of stuff in my book it's called la sombra which is the shadows Shadow. those are the things that to this day bother me they're my ptsd you know i suffer from ptsd yeah of course and uh these are the things that they never go away the people that have killed people like myself people that especially in my kind of work because you're you're talking to these guys you're having dinner with them you like them you they bring mm-hmm. you women they, they bring you tequila you sing with them you 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 you, you hang out with them and then later Ah, you have to kill them. Yeah. And this is the kind of things that we have to live with in our old age, in our my time now, that still bother me. And when I, I'll confess something to you that is that is very hard, but I'm going to confess it to you. Please. I lost a son to suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I and see. when my son died, took his life for a woman. But anyway, uh, there's nothing you know there why he killed himself, but he took his life. And I remember when I went to see him at the at the morgue. And he was laying there. I remember that I yelled at him, why did you do this? Why did you do this? And later I got on my knees and I I was mad at God and I yelled at God. And I said, why did you take him? Why did you do this to me? You know what came back to me, Rick? What? The guy that I killed here in San Bernardino. And I thought to myself, is God punishing me for that? Is God making me feel what I made those families feel of the guy that I killed. So these things you live with, and these are the shadows that that people don't talk about. Yeah. People, you know, hey, it's macho. Yeah, I put ten in him. That was great, man. You did a great job. That's macho. Yeah. But when you're alone, those nights when you can't sleep, and these thoughts come to you, those are the shadows. Those are, those are the things that haunt me to this day. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, was I just used as a gunslinger? You know, growing up, I was poor. My dad never took me hunting. I was an altar boy. I was very much with the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I never held a gun until I went into the, into the U.S. military, guy. Yeah. So you, I mean, that's that's the thing is is that you have to become who you're hunting, basically. I mean, they have to believe you a hundred percent, and your life is at that. I, I mean, I just side note, I believe that. God is a loving God, and He would never want you to feel any suffering and pain. Um, and for and I'm so sorry about the the death of your son. It's suicide is 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 a subject that's hard for people to understand. But it it he didn't commit suicide. He didn't do it. It's a strange thing. It was a sickness that overcame him, and that took it away from him, just like cancer. So I, I just know that to tell you because I've had friends who've committed suicide, and it's 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 one of the harder things for the survivors. So. Um, I'm so sorry I had to go to deal with that. But you now, as you're as watching your story and reading your book, you you got a chance to serve in Mexico. What was that like? Now you're home. You know, it was it was it was um, it was a a, a a terrible thing. You had to have really have eyes behind your the back of your head because the same police federal agents that you're working with were the same ones that were warning and working with with and protecting the the uh, people you were investigating. Mm-hmm. It was total corruption. But 
And you because you you busted basically the biggest marijuana field at the time for I think it was the the Guadalajara click, correct? Well, no, I did not participate in that. You know, um, and it was alleged that, but, that, oh, that Kiki that was part Kiki of that. Participated one. In yeah, that. Kiki did. Yeah. No, that was Kiki. Kiki. Kiki, Kiki. supposedly uh, took down the Buffalo marijuana fields. Mm -hmm. But so, as I investigated his murder, I found out that that was all. Um, that was all a fake um, reason that the U.S. wanted to put out as to why the cartel members killed Kiki. Let's we'll get back to that in a second. I want to get I want to follow you until we get into Kiki's story. So you're down in Mexico. You're now uh, in Mexico. You're, you're it's fearful because first of all, you're, you're absolutely right. There is corruption that's so strong. But then again, we have corruption as well, and we'll talk about that later. What was the first moment that you realized? You're in Mexico, and this is the world I'm in now, and the, and how big the problem is. Can you tell me a little something about that? Well, it was a very scary situation. I wasn't in Mexico a month before the commandante called me, and he said, Hector, he says, I want you to come to my office. I've arrested three guys, and supposedly they have a ton of cocaine hidden somewhere in the jungle here, and I want you to come help me interrogate them. So I said, okay. So myself and another agent by the name of Joe Martinez went, went over to the commandante's office, and they had three defendants there handcuffed. Mm -hmm. And he was slapping him around and kicking him and asking him, where is it? Where, 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 where's the clavo, the hiding place? Well, the, 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 the code name is clavo. That's what they call it down there. Clavo. And they weren't cooperating. So he said, you know what? We're going to have to take this guys for an airplane ride. So I said, well, that's cool. I guess they're going to take him on an airplane. Well, we went to the airport and we uh, all boarded a, a twin-engine Mexican federal police airplane and it was it, it was dark it was in the evening it was getting dark so we fly over Mazatlan coast there yeah. join us next week as we continue the story of Hector Bareilles's incredible story and his documentary The Last Narc now playing on Netflix you're listening to the Nahara in America podcast the podcast that isn't afraid to tell it like it is to people who aren't afraid to hear like it is 